Good morning. That was kind of unresponsive, don't you think? Start this over again. Come on back. Hi, Mark. <laughs> well, thank you. Good morning to you people, too. Now, that, that's spontaneous. That's the way it's supposed to be. Can you, can you hear a little hoarseness in my voice? I was at a birthday party last night, and uh, it was really a riot. It was a lot of fun. But the music was really loud, and, and I'm trying to have, like, deep God conversations with people. What a stupid thing to do. That was my attempt, and um, I ended up yelling a lot. So there's not much voice left, so we have to be careful with this today. So I'm just going to whisper the rest of the sermon. I hope you really get this. It's, this is uh, one of the best sermons I'll ever preach. I really hope you can pay attention for this. It's, it's going to change your lives. What? Somebody, they're praying for me this morning, and they laid on hands, and, and Josh, an idiot, said, you know, the this, this spirit of childlikeness come on Mark, as if it hasn't been there for decades. You know, like childishness in spades we have plenty of. And then he said, oh, there's going to be this lightness to your sermon today. Guys, this is one of the most serious sermons I've ever taught. There is no lightness in today's sermon. And I'm thinking, you're asking for a miracle. You don't know what you're asking for. So this, this idiocy right now is your portion of childlikeness before we get into the word. Okay. Some of you people are new today, and you're thinking, what is this? What's going on here? We have a lot of fun at this church. We take God very, very seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. So before we get into the Word, let me tell you about a book that Gary was kind enough to go and get 20 copies of. This is Some of you have heard of Brother Lawrence. It's a, it's a Christian classic, practicing the presence of God. And uh, he's got 20 of these out on the bookshelf, uh, on the book table. It's only $5. I highly recommend that you read this. Uh, there's, there's one thing we want to say about it. And this is an interesting... Um, this, I'll give you a little church history here. This is, this is really interesting. Where did the idea come from that God sends suffering to us to purify our souls. Have you ever heard that? That God sends sickness or he allows great persecution or he brings great, great persecution on us because it will refine our character. And that's suffering does, if we respond to suffering correctly, it does refine our character. But the, the way this developed was in the early church, you know, there was tremendous persecution. Christians were, were uh, killed. They were lit on fire in the roads to Rome. They were routinely killed. Uh, women, children, everybody. The church was under great persecution. And, and what the early Christians found was that the people that um, stayed centered on God in that persecution became much better people. They were, they were the, the theological phrases, they were sanctified through suffering. Their character, their Christ-likeness was increased through the suffering that they experienced. And this is the case 
if suffering comes to us and we persevere in God and hang on to him and hold on to him, we will find ourselves getting much closer to him and we will find our characters becoming more like him. But when the persecution ended, and this is interesting, when Constantine, the Roman emperor, made Christianity the the legal state religion, the, the religion of the empire, all of a sudden there was no more persecution. And all these people that had been avoiding becoming Christians because of the persecution rushed to the church because it was now the socially acceptable thing to do. And what the, what the committed Christians that had been through all this persecution for a couple hundred years, when they saw these people rushing in to join the church, you know, there's kind of a, an emotional reaction. Like, where were you when times were bad? And what they saw was... Uh, a, a dilution, a watering down of commitment within the church because it was being flooded by people that never went through the hard times. And a monastic tradition developed that if, if the world's not going to persecute us for our Christianity like it was doing and suffering was good for our souls because we persevered through it, we'll now bring suffering on ourselves. That's where the tradition of self-flagellation of, of, of hitting yourself with, with pieces of bone and, and, and sticks and, and leather, sleeping on beds of nails, wearing horrible uh, hair shirt clothing that was incredibly uncomfortable. They actually, if there's not enough persecution to purify our souls, we'll bring it on ourselves. And that's how we'll become pure, holy, sanctified. So this tradition developed of embracing suffering for the sake of character growth. And that's been a, it's been in the church for well over a thousand, going on 2,000 years. And that was the monastic tradition that Brother Lawrence grew up with. Well, look. You read this book of practicing the presence of God, it is going to change your life. It changed mine. Everything that Lawrence says about practicing the presence of God is absolutely true. The idea that we welcome sickness for the purification of our character is not godly. God is not the author of sickness or suffering. He doesn't torture people to make them better people. But what he will do is meet you in your suffering your persecution, your pain. And as you reach out for him for help, he will draw close to you because you're reaching out to him. And that's where your soul will be Amen. purified. Amen. So God uses suffering to accomplish something great, but he is not the author of suffering. He doesn't sit around thinking, how much trouble can I cause to make them better people? What he's thinking is, how close can I get to them in their suffering? to help them get through it, to make them better people. Amen. Does this make sense? Yeah. So read it through the, that lens. Read it through that lens, and I promise you, you're going to get blessed. And five bucks? Man, that's, that's a bad burger. Yeah. So anyway. All right. What we're going to do this morning is, uh, we're going to do something we don't do very often. We're going to do a Bible study this morning. We're going to take a, a relatively long passage and we're going to tear, up, tear it apart a couple of verses at a time and extract some ideas from it. 
And I thought of this passage because we're on the series on the glory of God. It struck me all of a sudden that there were really two kinds of glory in the Bible. And they're very, very different kinds of glory. And I want to speak on two kinds of glory. We're going to focus in our lives. We get a choice whether we're going to focus on this one kind of glory or the other kind of glory. And you're going to find as a Christian, you're going to focus on one or the other. You can't ignore both of them. You're going to end up making some kind of choice. Or what you probably will do is alternate back and forth between these two concepts, concepts of glory. What do we mean when we're talking about glory? Well, in this passage, we're going to look at the Greek word for glory is uh, doxa, D-O-X-A. And here's some of the words that it translates to when it's translated into English. Magnificence, excellence, majesty, splendor, most exalted, most honorable, most praiseworthy, absolutely worship, uh, absolutely worthy of worship and adoration. These are just some of the ways we can think about God's glory. But as uh, Josh said this morning, it's really summed up in the word goodness. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about his goodness and all the ways that his goodness is explained to us. So, two kinds of glory. Here's the first one. It's the glory we can achieve. Now, I was very careful about choosing this word, achieve. It's the glory we can achieve under the old deal. See, there's two deals in the Bible, two covenants, two contracts, the old and the new. And the first glory comes under the old deal. And it's a glory that we can achieve under that contract. The second has to do with the glory we can experience under the new deal. And I chose that word very carefully. In the old, you achieve it. And in the new, you experience it. And there's a world of difference between those two. What are these two deals that I'm referring to? Well, it's life under the old covenant or it's life under the new covenant. And they both bring a certain glory. It's, it's really easy to just trash the old covenant and say, well, you know, that's just the law and we're done with that and uh, there was nothing to it and it was really probably a mistake anyway in the first place and it's been supplanted by something far greater. It has been supplanted by something far greater, but it was glorious. There was a glory that came with the law. And the Apostle Paul I love him because he's literally obsessed with the difference between the two glories. If it weren't for him, we wouldn't wouldn't be Christians. Literally, if, if it weren't for Paul, we wouldn't be Christians. He was obsessed with the difference between the old deal and the new deal, the glory under the old deal and the glory under the new deal. And we should be obsessed with it too because... One is a source of death, and the other is a source of life. So we're going to start tearing apart this passage where these two glories get contrasted. And if you want to follow with your Bible, please do. And if not, we're going to make it easy for you because the script is going to come up on the screen. 
And uh, we're going to take it apart verse by verse. So it starts like this. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, if it came with glory, with magnificence, with excellence, with majesty, with splendor, most exalted, most honorable, completely praiseworthy, and worship-worthy. If it came with that kind of glory, so the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Well, what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the law which Moses received from God in the desert at Mount Sinai. And you remember that story? I think it's probably common to us. God told Moses, gather all the people, bring them together. In three days, I'm going to come, and I'm actually going to reveal myself to my people. Up to that point, the only person that had seen God, spent any real time with him, was Moses. And God is saying, I'm going to do this for everybody. And you remember the story of his coming. There's, there's lightning, there's earthquakes, there's smoke, eruption in the air. It's, it's absolutely a terrifying experience. And out of that, God begins to speak, and the people reject him. They say to Moses, we don't want him. He's too frightening. You talk for him. We'll listen to you. The people reject God, and God gives them the law. And now for the rest of the Old Testament, they're going to live under the law. But it came with glory. Well, all of that special effects, the, the, the shaking of the land and the lightning and the smoke and all of that. It came with glory because it's coming from God. It also makes sense that this glory, this presence of God that Moses experienced would affect him. It affected him so powerfully. It didn't just affect him emotionally or intellectually or spiritually. It actually affected him physically. His face literally glowed for days after this encounter. So much so that he had to put a veil over his face so the people wouldn't become fixated on this as he led them. All of this makes sense. The law must be glorious. It's coming from God, and God is glorious. The law is a perfect expression of his holiness. It is an expression of his moral perfection. It illustrates the holiness of God. But here's what's interesting about this passage, which doesn't seem to make much sense. It brought death. It didn't bring life. It brought death. And here's the question. How does something holy and glorious bring death to people? Why? How can that be? God is good. How can something from God end up bringing death to people? But Paul goes on to answer that question in this next verse. Let's read it. If the ministry that brought condemnation, that's the law, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Now, right away, he's comparing these two 
glories, the glory of the law and the glory of the new covenant, the new deal. One brings condemnation, the other brings righteousness. Then he goes on to say, for what was glorious, that's talking about the law, what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Whatever this new deal is, it is so much better than the old deal that when you compare the two, there really isn't any comparison. And he goes on to compare, he says, and if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Another contrast. This, this glory of the law that brings condemnation, and he says later, ultimately brings death. It was transitory. It was only for a period of time. It's going to come, it's going to accomplish something, and it's going to disappear. But this surpassing glory, this new deal, this thing that God's going to do through His Holy Spirit is absolutely forever. It lasts forever. It never fades. The glory on Moses' face faded. The glory of what God does through this new deal never fades. The problem for humanity is that the law brings condemnation. That's the problem. How can it not? God is, here's the sad news. God is perfect, you are not. And here's what's scary. The closer you get to him, the more aware you become of your imperfection. Do you ever notice that, guys? Before I became a Christian, I was horribly, utterly, and completely selfish. And I manipulated people all the time for my gain. I thought I was wonderful. My gift of manipulation, I thought, was the gift of leadership. I, had, I thought I was really, really wonderful. Then I became a Christian. It was, uh, it was horrible. I became aware over and over and over again of the depth of my selfishness. It was shocking. It was overwhelming to me. I actually thought I'm a worse person after becoming a Christian than I was before, but that's completely wrong. All I was was a person who's starting to see myself clearly. I'm seeing myself through the lens of God's eyes. I'm seeing myself in comparison to Him. What I'm seeing is not good. Shockingly bad. And then you go through the phase. I don't know if you ever went through this, but I sure did. Oh God, this is horrible. I'm horrible. I'm unbelievable. This is terrible. You have to fix me right now. Like you're big and powerful and you're amazing and you're holy and you're good. Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to come inside my heart and change me. Just change me right now, for, forever. Change me. Did he? No. Does he? Not like that. It's a growing thing. It's a relational thing. And it's frustrating. It's really weird. The closer you get to God, the more you see stuff in you you don't like. But because you don't like it, the more you call out to him and say, you need to do something about this. And you have my cooperation. And he begins to show you in the moment you're doing the bad thing, he begins to show you you're doing it. And you say, that's not very helpful, is it? I just did it, and now you're showing it to me. 
But the lag time between doing the bad thing and noticing the bad thing gets shorter and shorter and shorter until he catches you in the moment of doing it. Really? But that's still not helpful because you went ahead and did it. But then he starts catching you when you're thinking about it. I don't want to do that. Thank you, Lord. I don't want to be that way. And he catches you before you do it. And you're being transformed at the deepest level. And it has nothing to do with the law. You're not being convicted by law. You're being influenced by goodness. See, the law brings condemnation. How can it not? The law is holy in and of itself. It is an expression of God's purity, moral perfection, and holiness. And we are not. The law cannot produce holiness in us. It can only show us how unholy we really are. The law does not encourage us. It condemns us. Look, come on. I've used this illustration. Some of you heard this, but it's a very good illustration. You're driving down the road in your car on the freeway. You see the lights. You hear the siren. Oh, no. He pulls you over. You're busted. You're thinking, what did I do? I can't even remember what I did. And the cop walks up and he taps on your window and you roll the window down and you're getting ready for it. You know, here comes the ticket. And he looks at you and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? I got no clue. He says, I just wanted to tell you what a great driver you are. (laughs) He said, I've been following you for several miles. He said, that lane change back there, perfection. He said, the way you use a signal light is inspirational. I just want to shake your hand. You're a great driver. Now, when was the last time that happened to you? Never. Never. Is it going to? No. The purpose of the law is not to encourage you. The purpose of the law is to condemn you. And it does a really good job. And sadly, God's law does a perfect job of condemning you perfectly leaving you hopeless get it the law is an expression of God's perfection and you're not perfect therefore the law will condemn you now there's several other facts in this passage that we need to take note of The first is, there's a glory of the Holy Spirit that is more glorious than that of the law. We're going to talk about that in a minute. The second point is this. The glory, Paul says, that comes by the Spirit of God to us will far surpass the glory of the law. Thirdly, the glory of the law is transitory. I already mentioned this. It comes, it does something, it goes. It doesn't last. And fourthly, the glory brought by the Spirit, it lasts. Why doesn't the glory of the law in our lives last? Well, because we're incapable of keeping it. I want you to think about this. I I used to have this expression, this experience, I should say, often in my early Christian life, and I still do from time to time. You, um, 
you get up in the morning and you have your prayer time with God and uh, you bring all of your trash to the Lord. And you, and you really actually enjoy this. It's kind of, it's kind of perverse, but you, you look at all how rotten you are and you kind of puke it all out on God and you say, look how bad I am. And, and you focus on your failure with him and you're kind of pouring out your failure to him like you're, you're ready for him to agree that you're the worst thing that ever lived. And you're kind of waiting for that. And he doesn't respond very well to that. But you're sure you are. You're, you're trash anyway. So you pour out all these problems and, and whatnot. And you, and, and you, and you look at his, his book and you say, okay, there's the things I'm supposed to do today. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be patient. I'm supposed to be kind. I, I need to be self-controlled. I, I can't get mad on the freeway, which is always, of course, the failure moment. You're going to get mad on the freeway. It's just a matter of being on the freeway. It's going to happen. So you go through this quiet time and you get your, you, you see, because you're focusing on your failure, you with me? You're bringing your failure to him. You're confessing your sins, which appears to be a really good thing to do. So you're confessing your sins to him and you're getting, you're really getting in touch with how crappy you are. And it actually feels a little bit good because you're agreeing with his law. So you go through your quiet time, you focus on all the things you've got to do and you're going to get this right. You're going to get this right. And you leave the house and you didn't yell at the kids. Miracle. And you didn't disagree with your spouse. Earth shaking. And you get in the car and you start to drive and you haven't yelled at anybody. And you're winning. And you sense this quiet time worked. I'm really becoming a much better person. And you're starting to feel kind of good about yourself. And everything's unfolding kind of as it should. And then you hit the freeway. <laughs> and for the first two guys that cut you off, praise the Lord. <laughs> God bless. I'm sure he was in a hurry too. And then another guy cuts you off. Well, yeah, praise the Lord. He was probably in a hurry too. Third. <laughs> and you're mad, you know. And then you have this realization. Oh no. My whole quiet time was wasted. Oh, what a wretch am I. And now you feel worse. And your glory didn't last because you weren't capable of keeping the rules anyway. The glory under the law in your life lasts until your first failure. Then it's gone. And now it's worse than if it hadn't been there at all because it's perfect and you're not and you can't win. And it just brings death. Condemnation. The glory of life under the law lasts until your next failure, and that's usually before noon. But this is contrasted with the glory of the Holy Spirit that lasts forever. And here's the amazing thing. This is really something. The glory of the Spirit brings actual, it, it, the glory the Spirit brings actually produces righteousness within us. It actually produces righteousness within us, not because of our efforts. We're going to talk about that in a minute. How does that work? So what is the effect upon us of this lasting glory and righteousness brought about by the Spirit? And Paul explains this in the next set of verses. Here's the characteristics. 
of this new deal that produces goodness within us. Therefore, since we have such a hope, it brings hope. Because of this hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. The glory of the law is passing away. Their minds were made dull, for to this day, and this is a long time Paul's writing after the giving of the law, but to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. People, when you focus on the law, when you focus as, on the law as your Christian life, when your Christian life is about rules and regulations and the Christian life is about your behavior and performance, when you choose to live under the law, a veil drops between you and God. There is now something coming between him and you. And it actually is preventing your relationship with him because you're not relating to him, you're relating to a book of law. Hello? Do you get what I'm saying? It's like this. If I get up, if I get up in the morning and I have my quiet time with the Lord and I'm focused on my behavior and I'm focused on being good and I'm focused on the law, I will have this law hanging in front of me for the rest of the day. This is what I must focus on. This is, this is what I must do. God's on the other side. God's here. This is between us because this is where my focus is. Their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. Whenever you choose to see your relationship with God through the lens of the law, you are not seeing God anymore. Period. Because only, because only, there's only one way to avoid this. There's only one way to get this out of the way so I can actually see God. There's only one way to remove the condemnation that comes from the law, that comes from living under rules. There's only one way to get rid of it. You can't work it away by being good because you won't be good enough to do it. That will only bring discouragement and ultimately spiritual death. There is only one way. Because only in Christ is it taken away. Only through Him will the law be taken away from your eyes so you can see Him clearly, fall in love with Him, and let His goodness change you. That is the only way. And the difference between Christianity and all other world religions is that the... the, Look, the rules change in every religion. What doesn't change is the fact of the rules. Hello? Hello? There's only one religion that says the rules don't exist anymore. It's Christianity. He didn't come to give us a more refined religion. He came to remove it and replace it with a relationship. Only in Christ is that veil of law, living under rules and regulations, performance-orientated life. Only in Him is it taken away because only He can be perfect enough to fulfill those rules and lift them off of you so you don't live under them. We call that grace. It's the greatest, 
greatest gift that's ever been given to us. And this work of the Holy Spirit gives us hope. Life under law robs us of hope. There is no hope when you're constantly being condemned. Condemnation brings hopelessness and despair. But the Spirit of God is the Spirit of hope. And with Him we always have hope. With Him we never live in condemnation. We might be convicted of our sins by Him. But there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation says you are worthless. Conviction says you just did something wrong. You should do something to fix it. Condemnation says you have no hope. You are a worthless person. Conviction says we can fix this. In fact, I'm going to fix this in you. We're going to do it together. Condemnation says you'll never have a good marriage. Conviction says you're going to soon have a very good marriage. Because I'm going to show you how to fix the things that have been hurting the marriage. Conviction leaves you full of hope. God's going to do something in me. This is going to work out. Condemnation says you're worthless and you don't have a hope. You should just give up and quit trying to be a Christian. You know what? The only truth in that you should give up and quit trying to be a Christian is trying to be a Christian. Stop trying to be a Christian. Just stop it. Just stop that focus. Just stop it. And put your focus on him and how wonderful he is. And watch how your life begins to change. Not because you're trying, but because you're in love with someone who's wonderful and amazing and full of power and full of grace, who can help you to change. And you're not even noticing you're changing because you're just in love with him. Amen. And when we have this supernatural hope, because it's coming from him, not ourselves, we find ourselves very bold. Because we're not living under shame anymore. So we can be ourselves. You can be yourself. You don't have to pretend to be something else. Self-confidence comes from knowing Him. Knowing His love. Knowing that despite your failures and your your personality traits you don't like and this, that, and the other thing that drive me crazy about me, despite all that, he thinks I'm special. He actually thinks I'm special. Makes you bold, makes you strong, gives you confidence. The veil is the law which stands between us and God, accusing us of our failure. It makes our minds dull. We can't recognize the love of God because we don't believe we deserve it. How can you receive the love of God if you don't believe you deserve it? And the law is sitting there saying, you don't deserve it. You failed yesterday. You failed this afternoon. You'll fail tomorrow. You don't deserve this love. It's a lie. The law has now come between us. Only Jesus can take the veil away that stands between us and God. Now here's, this is so good. Listen to this. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
When you move your focus away from your failure and the rules and the regulations and the performance orientation, when you take your your gaze away from that and you turn to the Lord, the veil, the laws are lifted away from your gaze and you now see him clearly. And in that moment, something begins to happen inside of you. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Thank you, Jesus. Now the Lord is the Spirit. This is where it comes in. See, there's the Father and there's the Son and there's the Spirit. And by the way, most of our experiences with God on this earth are through the Spirit. It's His perfect presence everywhere, every time, for everyone, in every place. He's present for them because His Spirit is there. You see, you, 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 you only have one Jesus. You only get to have one Jesus. And when He's on earth, lucky people around Him. But there's only 12 that really get close to Him. That's not fair, guys. That's just not fair. What if you're number 13? Sorry, he only has room for 12. You are a loser. And so are the rest of humanity on the face of this earth because he only has room for 12. Carry on. But if he's a spirit, if he's omnipresent, if the essence of who he really is is always present everywhere all the time, Now he's available to every single person who wants him. Drives me crazy when people diss the Holy Spirit. Yes. You know? Well, I don't need the Holy Spirit. I've got the rules. Idiot. (laughs) What do you think? When you experience the love of God, where do you think it came from? Holy Spirit. When truth dawns in you, where do you think it came from? Holy Spirit. When comfort comes to you, where do you think it came from? Holy Spirit. He is the experiential part of God. He is the the dancing hand of God. He's the part we experience almost all the time when we experience God. Stop ignoring Him and start thanking Him that He's there making God real to you. And stop dumping on His spiritual gifts. I don't want to speak in tongues. I'm an intellectual. You pompous ass. I mean, serious. You fool. He's given you a way to communicate with him that goes beyond your massive brain that you worship. And you don't want that? Because you're so smart? Yes, it's through my intellect that I will perceive and commune with God. No, it isn't. Your intellect is microscopic compared to his. Don't think you're going to beat him in a debate. And you're not going to entertain him with your wisdom. You're just not that great a conversationalist. But we've got to have a way to have some kind of, you know, spirit-to-spirit communion with them. And it isn't going to be intellectually. You're not a match for him. But if he gives you a heavenly language which is spiritual, which goes beyond your ability to reason, but it pours straight from your heart to his heart, and it goes back and forth between you. Do you really think you don't need it? Do you really think it's optional? Who told you it's optional? Who gave you this lie? (laughs) 
Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. The Lord is a spirit. And where the spirit is, there's freedom. What are you a slave to? Now, don't, don't, don't doubt this. You're all a slave to something. You're a slave to yourself, the very least. Your own self. Or maybe you're a slave to fear. Or loneliness. Or you're addicted to something. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. You don't have to be that way. And we all who with uncovered, unveiled, you know the Greek word there for unveiled, you know what it actually translates as? Taken away. Any lights going on? And you with unveiled faces where something is taken away, now you see God. That's what was taken away. Now here we're getting to the root of it. This is where the magic happens. I mean that metaphorically. Okay. You know, there'll be somebody who'll take this sermon off the internet and they'll take that one line out. This is where the magic happens. And they'll say, that church, they're into magic. This is where the miraculous happens. And we, who with uncovered, taken away whatever it was, as we with open faces uncovered, as we contemplate, look at that word, as we contemplate the Lord's goodness, His wonder, His majesty, His splendor, we're being transformed into his image, into his likeness, with ever-increasing glory, from glory to glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Amen. We who with law taken away and no impediment between us and a relationship with God, as we contemplate, as we look at, the word literally means gaze, as we gaze at him, as we look at his goodness, We are being transformed, not we will be transformed. As we are gazing at him, he is changing us. I write it this way, beholding brings becoming. If you will focus on him and make him the center of your attention, and your mind is always returning to him between the events in your life, you train yourself to return to him after everything that happens, that little vignette that you just lived in, that moment at work, that drive to the, to, to, to the office, that lunch you just had with somebody. As you're going on to the next vignette, if you simply train your mind to return to him and look at him and talk to him and focus on him, Whether you recognize it or not, you are being transformed into His likeness. Come on, people. If that's not good news, there is no good news. Come on now. You're being transformed. At the deepest part of your being, usually unconscious to you, till someone begins to notice you're different. You're more patient than you used to be. 
You're kinder than you used to be. It's really nice when it comes from your wife. That's the money. When your wife tells you, you know, you're really changing. That's happened to me. I know, it's impossible. It's hard to believe, but she's actually said stuff like that. I got a lawyer and a notary. We put it in writing, frame it, stick it on the wall, look at it from time to time. You're being transformed into his likeness. And it happens as we contemplate the beauty and the wonder of him. In an earlier translation, the NIV used the word reflect because that Greek word to contemplate or can be to reflect. And we often say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a mirror. I'm just, I'm just a mirror. I, I'm just a reflection of his goodness. It's, it's not really me. It's, it's, it's all him. I'm, I'm just a mirror. He's shining on me and the light of him is coming out like a mirror. They changed that. The old version said, as we reflect the Lord's glory, we're being transformed. But I see in the new version, they flipped it and they said, as we contemplate him, we're being transformed. And that is a far deeper, truer. I'm really glad they changed that, in that, that interpretation of that word. Because it isn't just people. It's not simply that as we gaze at him, we're mirrors and re- we re- reflect him. That is true to a degree, but it's far deeper than that. We're being transformed. We're not just mirrors. The light is entering inside of us and doing something within us and changing our character into more like him. And it's so wonderful because it's not us fixing us. It's not me becoming a better person. Do you know, if, if, you, if you could actually make yourself a better person, I mean, really at a, at a deep, true level, not just fake it at meetings and in front of people and stuff, but like really becoming a better person, who'd get the credit? You. And we call that self-righteousness. And God hates it more than anything else. But the beauty of this is, it isn't us changing us. It's not my willpower or my self-control or my strength of character. It's who I'm gazing at. It's who I'm contemplating. It's whose goodness I'm focusing on. I'm not focusing on my goodness. I'm focusing on his. And that gaze changes us. It's influence. He doesn't lead us by command. He leads us by influence. He's so good. Look, how can you hang around somebody who's absolutely wonderful and not be changed by that relationship? Have you ever had a friend? You have both good friends and bad friends. The good friends end up making us a better person. The bad friends end up making us worse. We are people of influence who influence. Influence is the way we are changed. Now, when you put your focus on the best 
the absolute high water mark of wonderfulness, and that's who you're hanging out with, and that's who you're focusing on, guess what happens to you? You change. You become like them. You pick up their habits. You take your cues. You begin to treat people the way they treat people. It's not just imitation because it's transformation. You're actually being changed. Paul's telling us that we're being transformed at the core of our identity into the character of Jesus. He's telling us that this is happening to us as we gaze at God. We're not producing it. And here's how the process Excuse me, here's how the process. I've been dealing with a lot of people in Canada lately on the telephone, and I catch myself saying process, and then there's this dead silence, and they're thinking, he's not really a Canadian, is he? They've changed him down there. I bet he likes Donald Trump. Childish. Childish. Not childlike, Gary. Childish. I own it. As we keep our focus and our gaze in God, he's influencing us at the level of our deepest desires. He does this through influence, not through force. So what's our part? What is our part in this miraculous transformation? Simply keeping our gaze on him. Simply returning to him in all of those moments of life where we have the opportunity to do it. Spending time with him. Contemplating his goodness. Training our minds to return to him between all the changing tasks of our day. Asking him to reveal himself to us more and more and more. Spend time reading his word so we come to know more and more about him. Knowing about him will not make you him but it will help you to understand who you're gazing at so you're looking accurately at him. Obeying what he says, as he prompts us to do, our behavior becomes more and more like him, making him the focus of our lives. And doing these things not out of obligation to rules and rituals, but because we know we will come to really know him. Okay? Now go do it. Good people, go do it. If anybody wants prayer for anything, anything in your life, any issue, prayer teams come up, and we're going we're to end with an invitation to, to come and receive prayer. And if you want help in this process of focusing and gazing at Him throughout your day, you come and we'll pray for that too. Okay? Okay. <laughs>